We'll open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be briefly looking at this text this morning and then launching out to some other places in God's Word. The title for today is Taking the Mystery and Mythology Out of Parenting. Let me give you a little bit of context as to what we're doing and why we're doing it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, we read last study and studied this verse. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. After having spoke to wives and then husbands about their responsibilities biblically to one another, and then to children about their responsibilities to mom and dad, he turns and anchors his attention on the fathers. I think specifically because fathers have a unique temptation to push the buttons of their children. And so he tells them, don't provoke them into anger. But after studying that, before we go into the next section, which will be a biblical work ethic for both bosses and those who serve bosses, we're going to look more broadly at the subject of parenting, which includes moms and dads. So we're kind of pulling the car over. If you've been with us, you know we were some 90 sermons into studying the book of Ephesians. We've been going verse by verse. This we're going to pull the car over and go more broadly outside and look at parenting in general and grab some principles that I trust will be helpful. It's impossible to say everything that I would want to say or that God's Word would want, to, want us to hear about parenting in one sermon, but hopefully this will provoke some good thinking and some good discussion among you as parents so we can be more excellent in the way we please the Lord. Being a parent is pure joy, but at times can be pure frustration. Being a parent is overwhelmingly exciting, but other times it's fiercely challenging. Being a parent is indescribably fun. I saw a picture recently of when my boys were young, six and under or so, all wrestling with me and they're in the living room with their pajamas on. So much fun. It can also be inexpressibly, inexpressibly terrifying. I remember teaching our oldest to drive. And there and there was that first time where I handed him the keys and he drove off in the car without me or mom. And I was terrified. And then you realize he can go to the store for us. <laughs> and he wants to drive. He can take his brother where he needs to go. And it was, went from terror to joy again. Being a parent can be preciously heartwarming and some of you know it can be devastatingly heartbreaking. Being a parent can be sweetly delightful and heavily burdensome. Being a parent is not for the faint-hearted. As I said, we've been studying Ephesians and we've come to this section where Paul speaks to the family and family issues. These are consequential results of a man or a woman or a child who want to walk in the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit. And he gives us an outline of how to do that in our respective roles. In chapter 6, verse 
4, he turns to fathers, as we said, to be leaders and examples to their children and resist the temptation to push their buttons to make them angry. But before we leave the verse, we are going to take a pause, pull the car over, and talk about parenting for a few minutes in general today. Listen, the older I get, and uh, after being elk hunting last week, I am getting older, and my body is reminding me of that. The older I get, the more reflective I become looking back at my life. You know, it's so easy to find heavy regrets about so many things. And at the head of the pile is how I fathered my three sons. There are so many ways I wish I could be, have been a better father to my three boys who are now adults. I know there were times that I was, I was way too hard on them. I know there were other times that I was, I was way too soft on them. I'm so thankful that I had my precious help me, Kim, with me to help through those times. We are overwhelmingly grateful to the Lord that our three sons, by God's amazing grace alone, are walking with Jesus. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Literally, children are a treasure God places in your life. And Kim and I have been so rewarded by his kindness in gifting us with Luke and John and Mark. Can I be a little personal about where we are at this moment? Luke is our oldest. He's now a licensed attorney. He just passed the bar two weeks ago. Uh, Wow. See, the fact that you did that means I don't have to. So (laughs) very proud of him. He's married to... Uh, Annie, uh, Annie is the is the answer to our prayers. Quite literally, we prayed for our boys from from the very moment that we knew Kim was pregnant that he would bring them a spouse of God's choice. And Annie, you are the fulfillment of that for Luke. John is a seminary student studying for ministry. To another answer to our prayers, Mayanna, who is there in Louisville with our two grandchildren, Charlie and Tova, and Mark is a seminary student and serving here at the church. They are such rewards to our life. Their lives are trophies of God's grace, trophies that God puts on his mantle of his grace and kindness, especially they are trophies of the fruit of their mom's influence. Trust me on that. Speaking of moms, can we talk for just a minute about moms? Because last time we talked uniquely to dads. The Bible says a lot about you, mothers. It says a lot to you, moms. A whole lot, and maybe that will be a time for another sermon. I almost did that a few years ago on Mother's Day, and I began looking at it and said, I don't want the mothers to come on Mother's Day and say, listen to what God has to say about you, what you need to be doing. Thought another time would be good. Proverbs 29, 15, listen to this. The rod, which is corporal punishment, and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Doesn't say dad. Doesn't say parents. Brings shame to his mother. And the context is the rod and reproof give wisdom that she is involved in the disciplining of the children. She is involved in the nurturing and the shepherding and the caring for the children. Mother's influence is unmeasured. Proverbs 6.20, 
My son, observe the commandment of your father, you would expect that, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Solomon expected that mom was involved in the pedagogy, the child rearing, the child teaching of the little ones. And really, mom's instruction never, ever leaves. As the father of adult sons, I can tell you that every now and then I get a fun phone call. Hey, dad, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? But almost every day, mom gets a phone call. Mom, what do you think of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K? It's all the, uh, the wisdom, and I'm so thankful for that. Mothers are to be involved in the teaching process of their children about life, about God, about Scripture and from Scripture. Just a footnote about adult children. We are learning to be parents of adults. This is, this is a new chapter for Kim and me, and, and uh, it didn't come with an instruction manual. Uh, but we're learning that children are to obey and honor their parents, that the obedience part is when they're younger, but when they are adults, then it's the honoring part. And let me encourage you as a parent of adult children, we're in the honoring, not the commanding stage of life. That's a tough thing for all of us. So when it comes to matters of preference, we've lost our command. And we have an opinion that we can share. But when it comes to principle, we never stop sharing principles. That's Ephesians 5.21, which says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. That's everybody who knows Christ. So there's always that submission to one another in biblical principle. But with preferences, sometimes we have to let them go. Maybe you'll hear this a few times today. That Maybe that's... Subject for another sermon someday. Listen, parenting looks so very different with a two-month-old and a five-year-old, a 12-year-old and a young teen, an older teen and a collegian, and then where their children are out of the home. Parenting looks and is applied very differently. I've learned that by the hard way and in experience. When Kim and I had very young boys, they um, or elementary age, I should say, um, Kim was uh, at home with them all during the week, and so we decided to give her a break. On Saturday mornings, she would go out to a coffee shop or a bookstore and have some time by herself, two or three hours by herself. I would take the boys down to a donut shop. We called it Donut Saturday. It was kind of our fun day. They could go, and they could eat anything they want and as much as they wanted, but everything they picked and bought, they had to eat. Well, you can imagine there were some lessons learned with that. Uh, it was just a sweet and precious time that... I could sit with my three sons and talk about life and sports and God and the Bible. And it was just wonderful. And then my oldest got into junior high, and I realized that talking to a junior higher and talking to an eight-year-old was really different. And Donut Saturdays kind of dissolved into individual time with each of the boys because they were at such different places. I learned a valuable and a hard lesson that parenting is very individual with every child. You, you, you find out what they're like, what their inclinations are. There were some that, um, just one at least, that had what we could refer to as a leather backside and was tough. And one that we could look at and compliance was almost immediate. So, so different. In the future, we're going to have more and more session uh, counseling sessions and classes and times about parenting, and those are parts of our church body life that we need to keep cycling through, and from young to teens to 
older, and as I said, even adult children. Let's begin this morning with a very high altitude of parenting. What I want to do is something we've looked at before, but we're going to go a little, little bit more depth today. And I want to teach by negation. You say, what is that? If you teach the negative, that also shows you the flip side, which is the positive. So what we're going to consider this morning is a few common myths about parenting. And there is no lack of material on parenting. Wow, is there a lot of material you could turn to for parenting. Be careful with it. Some of it uses verses and biblical concepts without biblical definitions. Make sure that it's thoroughly biblical. There are books and blogs and videos and podcasts and conferences and websites. But the question we need to ask is simple. Do the principles that I believe, do the principles that I believe as a father or a mother derive from God's word or another source? Where does what I believe about parenting come from? So a few brief considerations of some myths that Christians can easily believe that will get us in trouble, okay? Ten common myths about parenting. We're going to go fast. And these would each be worthy of an entire series, not sermon, of... Uh, of um, preaching and instruction. Ten common myths about parenting. Now remember, these are, these are myths. These aren't principles. Number one, the goal of parenting is compliance. It's easy to think I'm a faithful parent if they do what I say. The idea is if I can cause my children to comply with my instructions and corrections, they will succeed and be well on the path toward faith in Christ. Not guaranteed, and not always. I know many families that had very compliant younger children who grew up and walked away from the Lord. The goal of parenting is the glory of God by faithful parenting, not always looking at the results. Of course, of course we want results. Think about salvation. Salvation is the desire of every parenting. I don't know if it can be our goal. A goal is something you can do and accomplish. It's our desire, but it's not necessarily a, a goal that we can put check boxes on to make happen. It's our desire. It's our prayer. Not really a goal. Goals are ideas you can achieve. Only God can save a soul. Therefore, our goal is faithfulness to our parenting responsibilities biblically. I have permission to share with you what I've shared in some context before, and that's our middle son, John's salvation. And I'll tell you, he has graciously said, Dad, you can share this in whatever context you want. We were struggling with Johnny um, when he was in his teen years, uh, probably 14, 15 years old. Um, and uh, he was very rebellious. His attitude was, was difficult for Kim and me, and we had many many nights where our pillowcases were, were sopped and wet with, with tears praying for, for John. I had to come to the conclusion that my best sermons had not done anything to move the needle of his heart. My best conversations had probably provoked him more than helped. Going out for coffee didn't advance anything. I 
I was trying everything I knew to do to get him to understand how serious the realities of heaven and hell were, how his disrespect was not honoring to the Lord, that this was not going to end well for him in life. My wife, my wife and I would hold each other in, in tears. Just what, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? It got so serious that at one point I, I met with the elders and said, I, I don't know that I need to continue on as a pastor. Not, I don't know if it's a qualification issue, but the, the question I had to come to was, were the demands of ministry taking me away from more time I could give to John? Maybe I could just get a, a nine-to-five job and have more time at, in the evenings, and, and maybe that's the best path. And I remember Mike Walgie and I having a long talk about that, and he said, let's just watch and pray for a while. My Calvinism with my son John went from theory to reality because Kim and I came to the, the only conclusion we had that we could do nothing to save our boy. Only God could. So we began to pray. Then he went to Ascend Camp, and a friend of mine who used to be an intern was preaching at that camp, Justin McKittrick, on the broad and narrow way in Matthew 7. And John received the gospel. He called us that night. This is the wonderful parent that I am. And to tell us, oh, that's great, John. I'm so thankful. And we hung up the phone and Kim's delighted. And in my heart, I thought, yeah, we'll see. And we did see. And now God's called him into ministry. That's not a success story to our parenting. That's a success story of the glory of God's grace. The goal of parenting is faithfulness. Remember, behavior modification is not the same as true godliness. Yes, we we should command them to comply. Yes, you should expect them to comply and discipline when there is no compliance, but not to equate compliance with a guarantee for salvation. Be careful that compliance is not the huge goal. Number two, here's another myth. Kids are basically good. Parents can think that for about nine months of the first part of their kids' lives. Kids are basically good. But then you come to the reality of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's your doctrine of depravity when it comes to your kids? What's your anthropology? How sick is the human heart in your theology? How dead is dead in your understanding of Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. If the problem is not sin, then the Savior will not be the solution. You cannot, I've said this before, you, here's the good news. You can't do anything to mess your kid up. They come that way. The goal is to see God take care of the mess through the gospel, through Christ. Kids are sinners who need a savior. Your greatest opportunity, your greatest responsibility, your greatest gift you can ever give your kids is Jesus. 
And they won't believe much about him unless you do. They won't live much about him unless you do. He won't make a difference in their life unless you can convince them that he's made a difference in yours unless God's grace superintends the whole process, and it can. Our kids come messed up by sin and a sin nature that can only be remedied by the gospel, by teaching it, by preaching it to them, by putting them in context where they can hear it, by living it out. Kids are not basically good. They're sweet, they're cuddly, they're cute. But if, if, you, if you have questions about that, I would encourage you to work in the four-year-old Sunday school for a couple of weeks, and uh, then we'll have a chat. How's that? Number three, third myth. The Bible is insufficient for raising kids. The Bible is insufficient for kids. We need psychology and methodology and sociology. We need how-to books. We need blogs. We need Facebook to help us with our raising our children. But do you really believe that Scripture contains, 2 Peter 1, all things pertaining to life and godliness, that includes raising your kids? Do you believe that God has given you everything you need in His Word to know what you need to know and do what you need to do to raise kids to the glory of God by being faithful and leaving the results up to Him? The Bible is sufficient. God's Word provides all we need for life and godliness, which includes parenting. Oh, this one's next one's tough. Number four. Church, it's a myth. Church is to provide the main spiritual guidance for our kids. Church is to provide the main spiritual guidance for our kids. It sounds good at first, doesn't it? Well, of course, church provides the, the primary or main spiritual guidance. The church should supplement what you're doing at home and mirror it. You should not subscribe to what we call curbology. You know what curbology is? You drive up to the curb of the church, you drop your kid off, you let them go to the youth ministry, and an hour and a half later, you hope they come back godly. Oh, sure, children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry should be a supplement and should help. And here's what's interesting. Sometimes it's a supplement, but for students who come to those ministries who don't have Christian backgrounds, it's the whole meal. But for you who love the Lord, it should be a supplement to what you're doing at home. Be careful that you're trying to follow Christian formulas for parenting. We go to church on Sundays, we send them on Wednesday, they come home and they're better. Well, I wish it was that easy. I wish it was plug and play. Or opposite, children only need their parents to grow. I, I've interacted with folks who have this idea, this theology, who think, no, no, no. It, it's my responsibility, and we don't need the church. We don't want the youth ministry. We want the children's ministry. I, well, they're going to sit with me and be with me every moment of life. I'm the only spiritual influence. That's not good ecclesiology. Can I just tell you personally, I praise God Almighty that there were moments when my boys did not listen to me very well, but they did listen to others. I've had conversations when we first got here where they would listen to Ben Hyman or Adam, Aaron. And you know what, what I had to get over, dads? 
is they would come up and say, you're not going to believe what Adam said in youth ministry. Boom, 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 boom. And you go, I've said that 30 times. <laughs> and you have to smile and say, good for Adam, that wonderful theologian. <laughs> Insight's amazing. But praise, praise God they're listening. Do you pray for God to surround your kids with people who say the same principles biblically that you hold to? And you rejoice when they hear it. God expects parents to be the primary spiritual influence, but he also encourages us to put them around other spiritual influences that are biblical. Be careful that your family might elbow the ministry of the church out of the way and be careful that your family might say the church is the only place where spiritual things happen. Number five, this is a myth. Corporal punishment is wrong and ineffective. This is spanking. Now, I, we're not going to say everything that could be said this morning about spanking. That, that deserves a whole other sermon as well. Proverbs 13, 24, though, says this, he who withholds his rod, that's the rod of reproof, that's spanking, he who withholds the rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That means we use the rod of reproof. Well, what if discipline doesn't work? Do we stop? No, the goal is faithfulness. I distinctly remember one time my precious wife was applying the rod of reproof in uh, context with one of our sons. And he said very calmly, I don't know why you're doing this. It doesn't work. I loved her response. She says, I'm not doing it because it works or not. I'm doing it because God tells me to. Oh. Now, quick footnote. I have to say this. Please listen. Corporal punishment, spanking, should never cause injury to a child. Is that obvious? It should never injure. It should never be done in anger. If you apply the rod in anger, they will never hear the principle. They'll only hear your anger. And it should always be done with self-control and calculation, communication. And we will be discussing this in upcoming parenting classes. The rod of reproof should be used with wisdom, discretion, self-control, and without injury or harm. Pretty simple, but not easy. Some people say, well, the, rod, uh, uh, the use of the rod is only in the, in the wisdom literature, so that's just suggestive. Really, you think that about all the wisdom literature that's just suggestive? It's a dangerous thought. If you have questions about that, please come and talk to us as the elders and pastors, and we can help give you wisdom on this. Number six, I feel like every, every successive point, I'm getting in more trouble. Um, Insulation and isolation from the world are possible and effective. We'll just keep them away from the world and that'll protect them. Some people think that schooling is the most important factor in a child's development. Homeschool is the best. Christian school is the best. Parochial school is the best. Private school is the best. Public school. Home is an issue, but it's not the most important issue. And homeschooling and Christian school is no guarantee for a child's spiritual development or educational experience. It's no guarantee. It can help. On the other side, public school is no guarantee for readiness to tackle a sinful world. 
It's not missionary training. We need to talk more about schooling with each other from a principal position that's based on biblical principles, not just preferences. And let me say for the record, I want this on the recording, I am not anti-homeschooling or anti-Christian schooling. Our boys went to Christian school for a while. Um, We never did homeschooling, but I'm not against it. Uh, Our personal decision, this is not, I should stand over here away from the Bible when I say this. This is is what we decided. We wanted our sons in, in public high school because we wanted to see what was in their heart and how they interacted with the world while they were still in our nest and we could do something to shepherd them through it. That's not a principle I would say is for everybody. We made a decision about our sons, about schooling. Each kid, each year, what's best. I can tell you as a college pastor for many years, though, that there were a lot of kids who were attempted to be insulated and isolated from the world who then they went off to college and they came to California and were in our college ministry and it's the first time they'd ever been around the world or in the world and they didn't know what to do. Had no idea how to interact with with sin and unbelievers. So make those schooling decisions well, but don't make a schooling decision because you can think you can insulate and isolate them from what's already in their heart. It's already there. At the same time, I don't think you should throw your kids to every perverse opportunity to see how they'll respond. That's not true either. There's got to be a balance, and that should be done with wisdom, with each other, being on the same page with the Lord. We'd be happy to pray with you about that if you have questions. Number seven. Adolescence is real. Adolescence is a real state. That's a myth. Adolescence, friends, is a myth. There is no such thing as adolescence except that we've invented this thing called adolescence. You know what adolescence is? Look it up in, the, in your Webster's. Adolescence is, a, adolescence is a time when you're not a child and you're not an adult. So what are you? You're an adolescent. So are you a child or are you an adult? It's not real. We've created this mythical state. Now, we, the, the school system kind of perpetuates it where they, they have their own subculture. It's a subculture we've created, but it's not a real state. And what I mean by that is when a, when a child becomes adult, which is usually around the age of puberty, you think God would design a human body to procreate without the expectation that they could be a parent and act like an adult? I'm not proposing 13-year-old marriages. <laughs> But would God do that and say, oh, we're going to make them ready to be adults, but they can't do anything about it for 10 or 15 years. That's what we've done. But go to most what we call third world countries, and they function pretty well without adolescence. It's not a state where a person is neither a child nor an adult. There is no state. I think it's interesting in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 33. This is, if you know your Bibles, 1 Samuel 17 is... David and Goliath, that Saul is talking to David and he says, you are not able to to go out against this Philistine to fight him for you are but a youth. Listen, while he has been a warrior from his youth. Hear a contradiction there? When he was a youth, he could be a warrior. You're a youth and you can't be. You can't be what the Philistines trained him to be. 
Daniel and his friends were junior high age when they stood up to the king of the ancient world at risk of their own lives. Can I encourage you that when your kids become teens, when they hit puberty, start training them and expecting them to have adult responsibilities. They're not going to go get a mortgage. I understand that. They're not going to drive at 13. I, contextually, though, raise them to be men and women, not fuzzy, neither child nor neither adult teenagers. Number eight, another myth. Marriage is inconsequential to parenting. Your marriage is a massive influence in your parenting. Now, I'm aware saying that there are outlier situations in our church. There are divorces. There are widows and widowers. There, there are uh, uh, contexts where one person is a believer and one, per, one parent is not. There are outliers. I understand that, and God's grace can superintend all of that. But your marriage is very consequential to your, your parenting. We as parents, according to Ephesians 5, are displaying the gospel, what we think about him, his word, what we think about God himself in everything, in every way we do and interact with each other as parents, as husband and wife. Ephesians 5 says that marriage is to provide an attractive insight to the gospel. Do our kids see the gospel displayed in our marriages, husbands and wives? What are you teaching and showing your kids about the gospel by how you relate to one another in your marriage? Are you gracious? Are you forgiving? And know this, your children are the most insightful observers of your theology in the world. I've shared this many times. It's worth repeating that Kim and I had a, 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 a we took our premarital class from Stuart Scott, who remains a deep, just a close friend to this day, and he said, I want to encourage you in our little class that we were meeting with, um, I want to encourage you to make a commitment from the first day of your marriage that you never go overnight with an unresolved issue based on Ephesians 4 we looked at. Remember, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Um, I shared this when we talked about that, but it bears here. And Kim and I, on our honeymoon night, prayed that we would never go to bed with an unresolved issue, but we had to change that so we never go to sleep with an unresolved issue because sometimes we argued in bed. Then we had to change that to we should never leave the room with an unresolved issue because my best plan was if we got into an argument that I would pout and go to the other room and wait for her to come fix it. And if you've used that, man, that's, you owe me royalties. That's my, my, my strategy. And so we fi- now we can't, if, if we get into something with each other, in, we can't leave the room. And then God gave us kids. And things happen in the van with your kids in the back seat, in the car seat, in the booster seat, sitting with the seatbelt, listening to mom and dad ping pong about things. And we understood quickly, if we get into something in front of the kids, we need to get out of it in front of the kids, which means confessing sin, itemizing sin, Forgiving sin. Then we had that time when, many times, when we're arguing, and I hear from the back seat this little voice, 
Dad, just confess and ask forgiveness. <laughs> Thank you, son. You know how this ends. Just get there fast. Okay. Listen, marriage is so consequential to your kids. I know when our boys first started dating, I became aware that their model for relationships is us. Be aware of it. Number nine, I have to move fast. Quality time is more important than quantity of time. That's a myth. Well, if I'll take my son out to Starbucks every month for, for an hour, I've kind of done parenting. I've done fathering. No, look, you should have quality time. But that doesn't make up with quantity of time. A lot of time, when you're up, when you're down, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're good, when you're bad, when you're happy and holy, and when you're not, that your kids can see you and interact with you with that. They need time with you. I know some of you travel for work. Just make sure that when you're home, you're all there. Turn the phone off. Turn the television off. Get it out of your presence and let them have you. Presence. Presence is the secret sauce of parenting. You got to be there. Sports, music, etc., are not biblical values unless you're involved with them, and then they can be biblical, biblically valuable. Spend a lot of time with your kids. And can I be that cue the violins, sad voice for a minute? When your kids grow up and leave, you're going to wish you had it. Enjoy the time that you have with them now. Number 10. It's not too late to start being biblical. No matter what age, what stage, you can apply and demonstrate God's grace. If you're like me and you look back at your life and you have so many regrets, there's forgiveness and there's grace for that. We have a God of grace. We need to start today. Two quick takeaways. And I'm bringing them from one verse. You don't even need to turn there. I'm going to be very fast. In 2 Timothy 3.14, which we looked at in our last study, there are two indispensable responsibilities for godly parenting. You put all this together, there are two takeaways. First is biblical instruction. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, I should say. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Biblical instructions. Timothy learned stuff from his, his mom and grandma, but... He learned things and he applied them. Biblical instruction. Be, have a Bible study with your kids. Have a Bible reading with your kids. And then secondly, authentic modeling. He says, knowing from whom you have learned them. Knowing from whom you've learned them. From knowing them. We are to be, moms and dads, reasonable examples, and I use that word carefully, reasonable examples, not perfect examples. We are to be reasonable examples of what we believe and what we teach. This means that we are examples of what to do, what to be, where to go, where not to go. That's the platform on which Deuteronomy 6 is built. Remember Deuteronomy 6? When you go, when you sit, when you rise, when you... All the time, classroom is always in session. 
with parenting. So, quick word to many who I know will be in the hearing of this now and in the future recording. There are those who were saved later in life, those who got biblical instruction later in life, those who came to better understanding of parenting later in life, and you look back and your kids are not where you want them to be, and you think, well, this is not very helpful. You know what's helpful? It's who is helpful. God. Grace is greater than, what's the word? All our sin. If you have regrets, there's a God of grace who can meet you in those, who can, (laughs) you can still pray for your children and don't stop. You applying any of these myths either overtly or covertly in your parenting? Good fodder for you to discuss with your spouse at whatever stage of parenting you find yourself in. And if you need help with that, please don't hesitate to talk about this with your care group, with your care group leader. Let's help each other find grace and glorify God in raising a generation to know the gospel and to live out the gospel. Father, give us this grace that we need that we're asking for. We just scratched the surface of so many of these important issues. Some are controversial in this world, but not in your word. Give us wisdom to be principled and act out of principle and not just preference in little and big decisions. All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.